This is the Bodar Blast by the USS Decatur, with your host, Lieutenant Junior Raid, Daniel Earl. All views expressed on this show are not those of the United States Navy and made by the individuals who are on the show. All music used is used with the permission of the songwriter or is royalty-free. This is a feature production of the USS Decatur and is made free to use and free for all the families and supporters of the USS Decatur DDG-73. Old and dear. And welcome to the Bodar Blast. I'm Lieutenant Junior Grade Danny Ehrlich, and I am the host of USS Decatur's flagship podcast, now coming to you via Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, and wherever you can find your stream podcasts. And we are super happy and super proud of being able to finally get you guys the podcast of USS Decatur to Bodar Blast wherever you listen to streaming podcasts. I know it's really awesome. Uh, we've been posting the links to Divids, uh, which is the DOD's specific uh, uh, pu- public affairs website, but it's great to finally get on streaming platforms and be a a podcast just like any other and share our story uh, while we're out on deployment and hopefully beyond uh, to the families back at home. Uh, We are so excited to be sharing our story today and uh, just kind of going over things that have happened over the last couple weeks. Uh, We've had a couple of successful uh, replenishments at sea. Uh, You've probably seen the photos of uh, us with both the the Charles... uh, let me say this correct the Charles Drew USNS Charles Drew and the USNS Amelia Earhart both uh, replenishments at sea were great we got uh, over 70 pallets of uh, stores uh, thanks to our supply team uh, for getting those supplies Uh, food uh, we didn't get any mail but food uh, dry stores frozen stores uh, ship store stuff uh, soda really anything that you can kind of think of that the ship kind of needs parts um, maintenance items, uh, that kind of thing, and uh, to our guys down at the fuel station, too. So, uh, you know, some people probably wonder what goes into a replenishment at sea uh, on deployment. Um, from the junior officer perspective, my perspective, um, I'm usually up on the bridge, uh, the pilot house where we steer, steer the ship, usually either as, you know, the, the officer to deck under instruction or junior officer to deck or the con. Um, there's various types of con. Um, one of the types of cons is the approach con. And approaching the vessel that you're replenishing at sea with, you're approaching a an, another U.S. technically a merchant marine ship, at, and you're trying to get 200 feet away from them. It, it takes a lot of training. Uh, it takes a lot of simulator time. Um, and it's all about angles. It's about geometry, really. And so you got to really prepare for that, understand what you're doing. That's why we briefed beforehand with our entire teams. Um, and then just being on the bridge, it's the command and control structure from there. But then you go down onto the station, uh, to the fuel station with our snipes uh, and our bosun mates. And snipe is another term for engineer. And so um, our, our snipes and our engi- and our uh, and our bosun mates and our, our, our deck team down there really do a great job at the station. The probe where we take fuel is huge. It's a it's a big it's a big hose. It's a massive hose and it takes a lot of people to haul it across a tension line and then basically plug it into a pipe that goes down into our fuel system and then our our engineers test the fuel make sure that it's good and then start pumping and so and they're also trained to respond to any any incidents that might occur uh fuel spills minor minor spills stuff like that um to the highest degree um we've we've never had an incident it's because those guys down at the station are super prepared and know what they're doing and are just really well trained and then you have the guys at the comrep station um Comrep is connected replenishment. I've talked about it before during episodes, but kind of getting more in depth about it because I've heard from you guys, and you guys want to hear more about the the specifics of what we do, um, and especially unclassified stuff like this. We can absolutely share more about what goes into this. And so the connected replenishment station uh, is all about transferring supplies. And so another tensioned line is put across. Uh, we 
have a, a bunch of personnel there too that set up that tension line and then there's a couple of winch operators one on the mer merchant marine ship and then one on our ship both are really well trained to uh, adjust the winches and uh, send the cargo back and forth and uh, it's it's a little when, when you're down on the station it can get scary the first time you look at it because you've got hundreds of pounds of cargo going across basically uh, 200 feet of open water on just a just basically a tightrope tension tightrope and you've got really well-trained well-skilled personnel our bosun's mates down there really well-skilled to be able to make that happen as well as our supply team who's ready to take those pallets transfer that the go those goods from those pallets downstairs into where wherever the supply stores go for the the freeze stores into the freeze room for the dry stores into the dry room if it's parts they go into uh to supply central um and and that that kind of gist so that that's what really kind of goes into the unrep and so we've done probably over 15 unreps now this deployment and uh and we just keep getting better and better each time and it, it's fun it really is fun to be up on the bridge it, it's tiring um it is tiring to do one after another especially being on the bridge so often but at the same time you get that you get that training and you get the the ability to learn more each time learn more about yourself learn more about your weaknesses and then learn more about the team and uh, i think that's what we've really developed each unrep is learning more about our team's strengths and weaknesses and diminishing those weaknesses every time and so we've done a great job uh amazing job by the teams for those two unreps and then uh we've also been carrying out um an amazing operation uh with with jointly with the uh, the USS Macon Island, which is uh, LHD-8, uh, and their Amphibious Readiness Group, or ARG. Um, and it's called Expeditionary Strike Force. Uh, it's where you combine our carrier strike group, the Nimitz Carrier Strike Group, to the Amphibious stri uh, Readiness Group, and you create an Expeditionary Strike Group. Um, and we've been doing what's called extra, uh, Expeditionary Strike Force operations, practicing for uh, supporting the amphibious uh, ships in launching marines getting those marines from the ship to the beach um, along with their equipment and making sure that they safely get there as well as supporting them when they have uh, b before boots get on the ground and then after boots get on the ground and so that involves supporting them through uh, what we call naval surface fire support or nsfs and uh, we practice that uh, we practice uh uh, supporting them in the air wing. Uh, we've been doing a lot of stuff with uh, the Nimitz, USS Nimitz, our carrier, as far as supporting them with their flight ops, uh, supporting uh, the Macon Island with their flight operations, and uh, just getting more proficient at launching those aircraft. And so um, it is a pretty awesome sight to sit out on the bridge wing or stand out on the bridge wing uh, during a watch and just kind of watch the uh, USS Nimitz or the USS Macon Island launch their uh, aircraft, especially at night. Um, we've been doing a lot of uh, helicopter operations. Uh, but I think my favorite part, and uh, I think the most awesome thing that we've done so far uh, for this Expeditionary Strike Force, which uh, you've probably seen on our social media by now. Uh, if you haven't followed us, uh, follow us on Facebook, uh, USS Decatur. And then uh, follow us on Instagram, our brand new Instagram. It's been up a couple months. Uh, we post a little bit of our stories there as well as just uh, some side and promotional content. Uh, so check us out on there at USS underscore Decatur uh, and uh, join us and learn more about what we do. Uh, but you've probably seen uh, my favorite activity that we've done for the, uh, or, or event we've done for the Expeditionary Strike Force. And it's been the HVBSS exercise. Uh, which is helicopter visit board search and seizure uh, exercise. So our visit board search and seizure team uh, is uh, headed by uh, Lieutenant Junior Grade Surrett, uh, who is a native of Louisiana. He is uh, the what's called the boarding officer, and he uh, trains the team and prepares the team. And um, I, I would say it's it's comparative in in a civilian setting to. 
uh, like a, 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 a SWAT team, but for the ship. And so uh, it's all ship personnel that are trained on the side uh, and go to a special school for uh, training to board uh, other vessels uh, that may be carrying contraband, uh, drugs, weapons that we don't want, um, you know, illegal things that we don't want being transported uh, for, you know, safety of the, the nations in the area as well as navigation. And so um, the visit board search and seizure team trains every so often, gets into our, uh, in our rigid hulled inflatable boats and uh, practices, uh, basically simulates boarding another ship and, uh, and searching through and uh, making sure that everything is good. Well, we got to train with uh, an EOD detachment, uh, expedition or uh, explosive ordnance disposal uh, detachment uh, that got to ro fast rope down from uh, a helicopter, which is amazing during this exercise. We, I've, I've never seen that before in my time in the Navy. Uh, they, they were in a helicopter about 20 to 30 feet over our flight deck and uh, took, a, took a rope down onto our flight deck, um, met up with our, our VBSS team, uh, which boarded the ship from one of our boats um, and simulated an exercise on board. And it was really awesome. Um, check out our social media to see photos of it. Uh, we hopefully are going to get an article published very soon, but hopefully you'll see some more stuff out about it very soon. Really cool exercise, um, and the team is super well trained. So much fun, um, and I, I I just love it. It's it's really cool to see us train for situations that may not happen, but are certainly fun to train for. Um, and then just a couple of shoutouts this week uh, before we go into our around the mess deck segment. But uh, a shout out to Lieutenant Junior Grade Choi uh, for earning his officer to deck uh, qualification. Uh, which is kind of the pinnacle qualification for junior officers like myself that are trying to earn their surface warfare officer uh, pin or qualification. Um, officer to deck is kind of that pinnacle uh, qualification. It requires the captain's trust, uh, a, a thorough knowledge of how to run uh, the navigational side of the ship as well as the normal operations of the ship. Uh, you're the captain's representative on the bridge uh, when you're navigating the ship. And so it's a big task and it's a lot of responsibility. So congratulations to him, as well as congratulations to our own fire control officer, uh, Lieutenant Ab Abershoff, uh, Alec Abershoff, who uh, qualified engineering officer to watch, which is an advanced qualification for a surface warfare officer. He's a uh, second tour on board. So congratulations to him. It's a tough qualification to get. Again, uh, this time more thorough uh, knowledge, just overwhelmingly thorough knowledge of the engineering plant, how to run it and be able to combat it if, uh, if something does go wrong. So really awesome job. Um, and uh, it, it's a lot of work to earn those qualifications. So uh, months at a time of studying, preparing for boards and, and just being ready. So uh, it is truly, both of those are truly achievement. And going into our uh, Around the Mess decks, we got a fun little uh, question for everybody. and. So uh, hopefully you guys have been enjoying this segment, and we're going to cut over to that. And I'm doing another segment of Around the Mess Decks on uh, Tripoli Tavern. I'm joined here by IT2 Kramer, FC1 Lau, MC2 Negron, I, uh, ET2 Nickerson, uh, FC3 McCaskill. And uh, the one question for all of you guys is going to be, uh, what is your go-to item from the ship store? So let's debate. Let's go. Bang energy drinks. Why bang? Because Bang's the best. Well, they just got Celsius. That's why. Because Bang sold out. Because Bang's the best. Bang's... Aren't those things bad for you, though? Yes, sir. But you need the caffeine. Absolutely. I just... I see you grinning like an idiot over there. All right. Uh, FC1? Uh, Gatorade. Okay. What kind of Gatorade? Uh, whatever they have. Blue, red, doesn't matter. Okay. What's your primary flavor, then? Uh, yellow. Yellow? Yeah. Yellow Gatorade. Mm. All right. Uh, MC2? Uh, my go-to item is Chester's Hot Fries. Chester's Hot Fries, all right. Chester the Chester the Cheetah. Yeah. And why uh, why Chester's Hot Fries? Um, I don't know. They just hit better than regular Hot Cheetos. They do hit different. Uh, they do, in fact, hit different. Uh, that, By the way, that's, uh, that's our uh, camera talent right there. 
He does everything around the ship for public affairs. So MC2 Negron, now you know what uh, fuels the beast. So uh, ET2 Nickerson, what do you got? Uh, so I usually go for the powdered donuts when they got them in stock. Okay. Uh, although I heard that shade thrown at the best flavor of Gatorade. Okay. They're suspicious. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was throwing a little shade because, I don't know, I've, Yellow Gatorade just doesn't hit different for me. It's the blue Gatorade for me. Yeah. Citrus. Everything citrus. Everybody can agree that the red Gatorade is just weird, okay? Uh, and then, McCaskill, what do you got? My go-to item is definitely going to be the noodles. Okay, why the noodles? Because there are going to be some scenarios where you wake up in the middle of the morning and you're just starving, but sometimes the breakfast line may not be open, or the galley could just be closed, but you're still hungry and you need to fill your stomach. So noodles are a perfect commodity for that. Yeah. For sure. They're an any time of the day meal. Yes. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And that was around the mess decks. And I'm going to actually cut over to another uh, special guest prior to our interview here. But uh, we had a question for uh, LS2 Henry uh, from somebody that actually listens to the podcast, which was, uh, how does our mail get processed on board? So awesome question. Uh, it's from a mom of one of our sailors. So we're going to pass it over to LS2 Henry. And I'm here with LS2 Henry in the mail office itself, the post office. And uh, LS2 Henry, you've probably heard of him before the last podcast, but he is also our mail clerk, and he's here to answer our question and answer session. So, uh, LS2, how do we uh, organize and sort our mail when it comes in? All right, so this is usually how our processes usually go from here. So, usually whenever the ration comes aboard and everything like that, before it does, they give us like a pot, what we call a pallet count. So, they pretty much break it down. It's like, hey, you have maybe five, three, or seven triwalls that's coming in or everything like that. From there, that's how I pretty much be able to actually plan out like how I'm going to execute the actually um, the evolution with the rest of the supply department. So usually, how I usually do is that once we actually start receiving the mail, I usually have my mail orderlies because they're the only ones who are actually allowed to actually touch mail. We go ahead, the things touch down on the stuff, we break it open the pallets, and then after we start moving it down straight down to the post office. For most parts, usually, like say we're taking mail on the starboard side, I'd usually go to the port break down from the filter shop going all the way down to 3MC's office and then after that shoot straight back down to the postal keyway where after that I just pretty much throw it inside the post office from here. Once we get everything that can fit inside the post office, what I'd have to do is I'd, I'll close off the postal keyway sections and then after I have all my mail only stand by their um, individual divisions signs just to let them know that okay hey this is where CA is going to go, where CG is going to go and everything like that. From there once we start breaking open the actual bags, we start calling out names we're like hey um, SCG 3 Thompson and then after that it would be oh yeah this is C8 and then after it gets moved to C8 but let's say DC3 Piers, DC3 Piers end up going to ER division and then after the mail oldies will go ahead and stack them up and then after that once we're finished with that one they'll go ahead and write out the pink slips once the pink slips are done with all the information pretty much meaning the tracking number who's going to go to who made the slip or anything like that they'll go ahead and take the pink slips and it'll actually deliver it to the person who it's supposed to go for and then after that, that person's job who the mail is supposed to go to is going to sign it and then after that, they'll come bring it back to the post office. And then after that, we'll exchange the actual mail for the pink slip just to make sure that, okay, hey, there's been a change in custody. And that's pretty much how we actually mail. Got it. And then uh, why are the mail orderlies the only people that can touch the mail? Then? So the mail orderlies are the only people who can touch the mail because they're the ones who have been given special training and how to handle the mail. Because right now, the DOD has a special agreement with USPS allowed us to use their services and that was pretty much like one of the stuff they want us to know how to actually handle mail because any offense against mail pretty much meaning that you're going to take it you're going to damage it or anything like that is actually a federal offense and people can actually go to jail and maybe fines um in accordance with that so just to make sure that you know mail is actually delivered to the right person at the right place at the right time we just pretty much limit who can actually touch it yeah, mail tampering is a bad thing, even uh, even in the Navy. So thank you, LS2. I appreciate you answering our question-answer session. Hopefully that answered your question back at home. And uh, we're back from LS2 Henry. Thank you so much, LS2, for contributing to the show. And uh, he's our postal clerk on board, and so he knows everything there is to know about mail. And uh, I am proud to introduce, uh, to round out the show, because this will be the end of the, the main part of the podcast the the show will close out with our interview because for our fifth episode of the bodar blast i have a special feature interview uh he's been very elusive to get for interviews 
Um, but it is always awesome to talk to our commanding officer, Commander Richard Jimenez, uh, who is truly the pinnacle of uh, being a surface warfare officer and an amazing commanding officer uh, who deeply cares about his crew. Uh, he gave us really kind of the inside scoop on what it is to be a commanding officer at sea. So uh, our feature interview, uh, this will be a long one, but over to Commander Jimenez and uh, thanks for listening to the Bodar Blast. And I'm joined by the commanding officer of USS Decatur, uh, a really elusive interview uh, throughout this past week, but uh, it's really awesome that we could get him for our fifth, uh, our fifth episode, uh, Commander Jimenez. Uh, sir, thank you for joining me uh, this evening for the Bodar uh, Blast podcast. Well, Danny, I appreciate your patience, and uh, I know we've been pretty busy the last couple of days, but I'm glad that we finally got a chance to to nail down this interview. So I've been looking forward to it, actually. Yes, sir. I, I, I know you have because uh, you mentioned it in the boardroom. I was uh, interviewing for our fourth episode, uh, PS3 Revent, uh, which, uh, if it hasn't been out already, uh, you'll hear it on the airwaves very soon. But uh, the really good interview. And Captain comes in halfway through the interview and uh, mentions, uh, was like, what, what's going on here? And uh, I'm like, uh, I'm interviewing PS3 Redmond, and uh, well, Captain, so, you expressed interest. So, so am, am I the first triad member to get an interview, or have you already interviewed? Yes, sir. I, I think uh, I think we got to start a little competition between you and the XO, because okay. uh, in the Christmas video that went out, the XO had quite a bit of flair. So. Yeah, he, he, he most certainly did, And uh, but I am glad that you... Uh, I'm glad I'm doing the interview first, so I, I'd be my feelings would be hurt if you. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> and I, I I really appreciate it because I, I know that a lot of families back home also do want to hear what's going on, okay, and uh, especially from the commanding officer. So, it's important. Uh, sir, uh, starting more about uh, your your history in the Navy and, and what has made you basically you in the Navy. Um, you went through OCS, but uh, what did you do in that time before the Navy? Uh, so in the time before the Navy. Um, you know, I was just trying to figure things out. I, I had kids at a young age, so I was, uh, I was kind of in a relationship with my my wife now. But uh, it really kind of started off when I was a college student. I had several jobs. I was studying at the University of Texas El Paso, and uh, one of the uh, one of the jobs I had was as a telemarketer, and uh, I, you know I was using that to kind of pay my way through college a little bit. Uh, terrible job. Uh, I learned. Uh, I learned how to talk to people and uh, kind of try to establish relationships in the 30 seconds that you have to try to sell them long distance service or whatever it was we were selling at the time. But uh, I, I worked there, I worked at, I worked at Walgreens in the pharmacy. Uh, that was an interesting job, I met a lot of good people. Most of them were college students as well. So we had that in common. And uh, so I worked at a pharmacy. And, uh, probably the most memorable job and something I may even consider going back to was teaching. I taught at a at an adult learning center called Languages Are Us, and uh, I, it was a really rewarding job. These were people who were on their second chance to try to get their education, their GED, or, or for whatever hardship they had endured that, that, that made them leave high school. Well, this was their second chance, and I, I was a part of that process. And it was always very, very satisfying when, when somebody met their goal or succeeded and you know you put in a lot of hours to try to teach them just the curriculum to be able to pass and and that was a great job and I, that that was the last job before uh, I came into the Navy um, I came into the Navy via a program called BDCP I don't even think it's around anymore but um, I asked to join after 9-11 and uh, so 9-11 occurred and uh, I was ready to go I went into the officer recruiting office and I said I'm, I'm ready to do this and they were like hey slow down you gotta you gotta finish school that's what that's how this program works and, and so so I did that and then after that I left for officer candidate school in the fall of 2001 and so you mentioned 9-11 uh, sir so that was kind of that that moment that really got you like wanting to go into the Navy was that like your only reason Wanting to go into the Navy, sir? Uh, not my only reason. Uh, I mean, I, I also kind of uh, ran out of options for college uh, in terms of money. And so um, I had bounced around a lot, and uh, I just basically ran out of financial aid. And I had an older brother who was in the Navy at the time while I was a college student. 
and you know me and my uh, my older brother Ivan um, you know he was talking to me about you know places he had been and he you know he grew, grew up in the same house that I did and I just I just thought that wow he's having this great adventure he's a naval officer he's also the first person to graduate from, from college in our family and uh, you know it was working out for him so I had always considered it but uh, the event that kind of pushed me over the edge uh, towards military service was uh, 9 11. Got it, sir. And you also mentioned having a, a family early on in kind of your life and your career. So uh, throughout your career, what's it been like being both a, an officer and eventually an executive officer and a commanding officer um, and being also a, a father, a husband, a family man? How do you, how do you hold that balance? Wow, that's a great question. So the way I saw things then was I was all I was I was about to I was really about you know meeting my goals in the military and in the Navy and you know meeting my promotions making sure that uh, that I was tracking in the right direction and I attribute a lot of my ability to be able, being able to go to do that to my wife and you know a lot of the a lot of the issues that other folks have with spouses and you know, the children and, and especially dual mill I have a lot of respect for dual mill folks uh, we're trying to take care of kids and raise a family while you're both doing the military but for me it was really Patty uh, who always just did whatever she needed to do to keep the family together and uh, the experience of leaving on deployment for the first time and leaving the family behind was rough and you know, it was just a tough deployment. Uh, we didn't have a lot of the same communications that we have now. You had to like buy a calling card to call home, and basically meant you just weren't you weren't talking to anybody until you either pulled back in or pulled in the port. But uh, you know, the kids they just grew up with it, with the idea that from time to time I would leave on these deployments, and uh, the family always pulled together, uh, centered around my wife. And uh, when I returned, I had a, there was always a rough kind of patch, reassimilating with the family. And, uh, you know, assuming either the head of household role or the support role. Uh, but we always made it work. I think my daughters and my wife kind of got used to it after so many deployments. Uh, but now I see things a lot differently. Um, you know, my kids are grown up and uh, my, my wife's back in San Diego by herself. and. The, I think about that a lot from time to time, but uh, I missed out on a lot of stuff, but I was also in the, in the mode of providing for the family. And uh, now that my kids are grown up, you know, I ask them this question all the time and uh, they don't remember anything bad about it. It's mostly, they mostly remember that I would leave and then they would miss me and they were always just really happy to see me again when I got home. And, then, and now when I talk to them, you know, they're just really proud that, you know, me and my wife are still together after uh, all this time in the Navy. And, uh, and they're, they're, they're sharing my career success with me. So they're, they're a big part of it. Yeah, sir, and I, I agree. Dual mill to mill is, is really tough. And, um, and those relationships in, in the Navy and in the military are really tough, sir. So that you've been able to keep that really strong relationship with your family is, is amazing, sir. How do you, when you are home, um, how do you kind of keep that, that relationship with your family? What kind of events and, and things do you do to make sure that you keep those bonds? Well, I listen to my kids and all of the craziness that they have going on in their young lives. Uh, I try to give advice, uh, but I, I don't try to, I try not to tell them what to do. I just try to give advice and support what they're doing now. Uh, my oldest daughter is, uh, she's trying to become a teacher at a high school. She's got training as a nurse, uh, but she's trying to, uh, so she's been a teacher at Great Bridge High School now for a couple years. Uh, she's got a, a five-year-old grandson, or five-year-old son who's my grandson. And she's all about Austin, who is, our, who is the love of our life, uh, our grandson. My younger daughter's uh, a senior in college and she's gonna graduate here soon. And it's just, you know, whenever I, I talk to her, she asks me for advice on things. And I just, I, I'm glad that they even ask for advice. Uh, I give it, I don't try to push too hard. Uh, with Patty, uh, well, Patty's pretty much my rock and she's, she's the one that has kept everything together. And 
I know that whenever whenever I need somebody to talk to that she's always there so it's just really about trust and relationships but at this point in my career I just I see things differently and uh, I'm a lot more calm um, I know when my when my kids were growing up you know from time to time I sometimes would treat them like the sailors <laughs> at least that's what I was accused of a lot but uh, no my, my, my daughters I'm super proud of them they turned out to be uh, good contributing members of society I, I'm super proud of my older daughter she's a great parent and uh, I think they, they both have mine and my wife's work ethic and so it's just great to be their dad and to watch them grow up into being adults and you know they realize that adulthood is tough but I think that they're well suited for it, and uh, I'm just super proud of them. Sir, and you, you mentioned earlier that you had done some teaching um, at some learning centers earlier on in your uh, in your life before the Navy. Um, do you do a lot of learning in your job as commanding officer? I mean, there's also a lot of teaching as a as an officer, but do you, do you learn a lot uh, as as the commanding officer of a ship, sir? Um, yeah, well, I'm always learning. Um, you know, a lot of it is, a lot of it is you're learning about yourself and how you react to different things, like good news, bad news. Uh, uh, you're learning a lot about like your people, right? Um, I take an interest in what everyone does, what, where everyone's from. You know, I, I, there's an interesting fact about every, about all 330 people here, and. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I just enjoy talking to them and learning more about, about those folks. But for the most part, as far as, yeah, uh, I'm learning a lot about, about uh, operating in this AOR, uh, the Western Pacific is vast. Uh, we're learning about you know, what the adversary is doing in this big chess game that we're playing out here. And so it's a, you're, it's a constant learning environment. Um, what was working for us last week probably won't work for us tomorrow, and we've got to adapt. We've got to adapt to weather. We've got to adapt to material challenges. When something breaks, as the captain of the ship, if I don't know a lot about it, I need to learn about it because uh, material degradations like that create risk. So, I mean, I'm a career engineer, so when things happen in combat systems that are degradations to equipment, uh, yeah, I, I ask questions and I try to learn more about, okay, uh, what does this equipment do for me? Uh, what are the redundancies? And uh, you know, how do we fix it so that we can uh, continue to, to meet our mission? So yeah, so, uh, I'm, always, I'm always learning something about either the ship, myself, some piece of equipment, or just uh, operating in this environment. Sir, and I, I learned earlier this week from you about kind of what you feel your role is as commanding officer and, and how you feel your responsibility is to, this, to the sailors on this ship. So uh, for everybody back at home, what is your role as commanding officer? What are your responsibilities? Um, what is kind of the commanding officer of the ship? What do they do? Well, it's all-encompassing. Um, first, I'm in charge of the employment of the ship. That's the basic nature of, uh, of being the CEO. So um, the ship needs to be able to move, shoot, communicate, integrate with other vessels. Um, we need to be able to plan, execute missions, and all of that falls under the umbrella of the CEO uh, as far as uh, how we do that. But I'm also responsible for the training of all of my officers on the ship for them to eventually be ready to assume the role as commanding officer at some point in their careers if they choose to do so so that's part of it so um, you know I got an entire wardroom of 40 I think there's 44 of you and uh, I'm responsible for training every single one of the officers every crew member has something going on whether that's you know, making sure that their pay is correct, making sure that their families back home are taken care of. Uh, a lot of them have certain issues, and they have they have uh, things that they want to do with their careers. They have advancements that they need to that they, that they need to meet. And so, 
my job as the CEO from, on, from that perspective is to provide the opportunity, to provide the, to provide the opportunity, to provide the platform, and, and, and to provide the mentorship and guidance to get every, every sailor to the next level and to get them to meet their goals. Because if the sailors on an individual level are meeting their goals, overall, the ship is meeting its goals. And uh, lastly, I'm overall responsible for everything that goes on in this vessel. So whatever happens, I'm the one who ultimately has to answer because I have ultimate responsibility. So with that, that means that I have to be able to provide top cover for, my, for the mistakes that are made by my crew. Um, I have to be able to support and remove barriers from the crew so that they can effectively do their jobs. Um, and so there's a, there's a wide variety of different things that, that I'm responsible for, but overall, I would say that I'm responsible for, for the people, uh, the ship itself, and, uh, and everyone on it. So I mean, it's kind of a hard thing to describe. It's a really intense job, sir. Um, it's a really rewarding job, though, too. I mean, uh, you know, I'm always just so proud of the ship and the crew, and, and I've been here since December of 2019 as the XO and now, the, now as the captain, and I've just seen the transformation of the ship and, and everything is trending in the right direction. So in the 22 years that I've been in the Navy, there isn't a single job that has been as, as, as rewarding as this job, uh, even with all of the changes and and a lot of it, quite frankly, is some of the some of the heartache that you have because you can't do something to help a sailor. Um, but even with all that, uh, it is the most satisfying job I've had in my life. Yes, sir. And would, would you call like your change of command day the proudest point of your Navy career? Well, first I got to get there, Danny. <laughs> I mean, uh, but. Uh, I would say I would say yes. I would say yes. Well, um, again, this is a pinnacle tour for me, um, and we're doing things at such a high level. You know, I talk to a lot of my peers on other ships, and like some of their struggles are 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 not the struggles that we have here. And I, I consider myself very lucky that we have the crew that we do. Um, but for me to be here uh, as the CEO of this ship uh, on this pinnacle tour um, and with all the success that the ship has had and all the good that we've done for all of our sailors, I, I would say uh, uh, turning over a good um, post-deployment ship that understands how to execute, uh, turning that over to Commander Furtado, who's going to be my relief, uh, is going to be a very, very proud thing for me. Yes, sir. And uh, you mentioned struggles on this ship, other ships. As a commanding officer, what has been your hardest moment? What has been the most trying time you've ever had? Um, I've had a couple. Mostly it's when... I mean, I've had a couple of these. So mostly it's when, when, when something's unfair... Uh, towards one of the sailors and and then there's not a whole lot that you can do about it and uh, and sometimes those situations are frustrating that you know had you have you had you had a little more information a little bit sooner uh, you, you probably could have done something to help and but because you didn't know or because somebody didn't speak up uh, you know you had an issue and you know, so that that that's always a very frustrating thing because you, as the captain, you know, you have a lot of power to to, to do things for people and to, to make sure that situations are set up for our for our, our guys. Uh, but when you don't know what you don't know, and then somebody something happens that's that impacts a sailor in a negative way, that's always very frustrating. Um, I would say Chateau was tough, Chief Chateau. And uh, that was probably one of the toughest things I've ever had to deal with in my career, is uh, talking to his family about what had happened with him. And uh, the question that I had to answer was, 
he asked me in September my son was was fine and he got promoted to chief and I didn't hear from him for about two months and now this is the news that I'm getting can you please tell me what happened to my son and, and, and I, I didn't have an answer for her and uh, and I just I, I tried my best to explain what I knew and and I knew that it wasn't a good answer and it wasn't satisfying and I didn't feel good about it and uh, but I really admire that family. Uh, getting to meet them in person was was a lot of closure for me, and uh, and I still keep in touch with uh, with uh, Chief Chateau's mom. But uh, but I would say that was a really trying day that that that, that had happened. Um, what else? Uh, Yeah, those were some of the tougher days. Uh, again, most of the time when we have issues, uh, people may, we make mistakes, but we, we, we move on. But uh, but those were two of the most trying times that I, I can remember recently. Kind of flipping it around a little bit, sir, uh, to, to more uh, to, to a positive end from the hardest. Um, you mentioned uh, finding peace here. At, um, how do you find peace at sea? What do you do? What's your routine every day? But also... Where do you find peace in this, this 505 foot long metal ship? How do I find peace? Uh, okay, well, in the moments where I'm by myself, uh, you know, like in the morning, I wake up and I try to exercise. I think that's the best way. The, the best way to kind of start my day off. And, and I know that throughout the day, I'm probably not going to have time to work out. And so I started. I started just. I wake up at five, and uh, I'll I'll do a like a push-up, sit-up, and a stretch re uh, regimen that I do every every day. And um, that gets me ready to start my day. I mean, at that point, I'm like, okay, at least I've got that under my belt. Um. Oftentimes, I'll uh, I'll just kind of ad admire just nature. I'll go up, stare out the bridge, and just admire the wild blue and and the weather the sunsets are, are really nice out here and uh, that's something I, I didn't do before I you know when I when I was out, out to sea uh, I didn't appreciate it as much as I do now and I think it's probably nostalgia that I won't have this after this tour because this is my last sea tour but I just appreciate like sunsets nature being out on the ocean the humidity, the heat. Um, so I take a lot of solitude in that. But I'll tell you, Danny, that the, the thing that brings me the most peace is just walking around, talking to people. And I'm in the same boat as all of my guys, right? I have a different job than they do, but we're all in this together. And I think that, for the most part, the crew understands that. And there's a... There's a lot of peace in camaraderie with these guys. And uh, like the JOs, uh, I love talking to my JOs. They make me laugh, you know. I, they, they're seeing everything for the first time through their eyes. And I think back to when I was a JO, how everything was new. And, you know, everything that we were doing was just new to me. And it was a new experience. And all of my JOs are experiencing that. For me, that's that's just really awesome, and uh, I get a lot of satisfaction. But I take peace in knowing that I am here with people who are all pulling in the same direction and who want the same things that I want. Yes, sir. And uh, you know, when you go work out in the mornings, especially on Sundays, up on the bridge, uh, you know, you call up and you say, "Hey, I'm going to be at the gym," uh, and we're we're like passing over to Ned. Hey, Captain's gonna be at the Church of Iron. Uh, we're gonna hey, reports go over this uh, to the XO, but uh, we we definitely see you at the gym around the out the bridge wing, just enjoying the sunset, sir. And it's definitely being out there in the wind and all that is just well. Uh, great. Part of it is I gotta keep up with with uh, with you guys, right? So I mean, I can't I can't fall too far behind, even though you guys are a lot younger. I feel like your run times are better than mine, sir. But you talked about being a J.O., sir, so you see the J.O.s now, um, but what was kind of your slow process like? What made you choose slow out of OCS, and then what was 
your qualification process like? Yeah, so initially, um, I was a business major when I graduated from college. And so at OCS, I was going to actually be a supply officer um, initially. Um, but I didn't want to be a supply officer, and I didn't know anything about the Navy, and I, I, I really just, I wanted to do like real Navy stuff. Uh, and supply just seemed like it was, you know, in the business world. And, and so I wanted to do like your traditional naval stuff. And so I picked SWO when I was still in OCS. And so me and two others who were in my, in my OCS class were all going to the same ship. And so I arrived on board USS Lassen in 2002. And I flew out to Japan to meet the ship. And for the, the, the first thing was, I couldn't believe I was going to Japan. From where, I, where I'm from, I mean, I'm from the middle of nowhere, Texas. And uh, I was flying to Japan, to Tokyo, to meet the ship. And it was just, I was just so excited about it. I was, I was starting off my career. And uh, I arrived on board USS Lassen. And so my process was, I had training to be a commo. I had gone to six months SWAS, plus there was an additional three months of training specific to being a communications officer. And when I arrived on the ship, um, they put me in engineering, which I had zero training for. And so <laughs> I had to learn fast, but uh, the, I was indoctrinated in the engineering department on USS Lassen. And it was a little bit different back in those days. You know, like the, the engineering department had a lot more people and, uh, and we just kind of handled our own business. It was our own little world, you know. The, uh, the engineering department was different than everybody else. And as an engineering officer, you weren't really concerned about everything else that was going on outside of your department. So, and so my process was, uh, I didn't get to rotate up to the bridge like some of my peers did. I just kind of, they, they kind of just forgot about me in engineering. And I had a great chief, uh, his name was GSMC Ceballos, and he kind of took me under his wing. And he, I remember say, him saying to me, he's like, hey, well, they're not gonna get you up there. We're gonna train you to learn everything about engineering down here. And so I, I, I did that. And I was probably the most knowledgeable engineer in the, in the world. As far as my, my, my level of knowledge for engineering in, in the wardroom, I was probably the most knowledgeable guy, aside from like the Chang, which is the chief engineer. And so I really learned it, uh, I really learned the engineering plant well, and uh, you know, I was qualified as an EO before I was qualified as an OD. And then, uh, and then finally I got to rotate up to the bridge and, and then I, I, I cut my teeth as an officer of the deck. My process, was a lot easier than like say your process and your peers. Um, I think there might have been maybe eight of us uh, who arrived on the ship at the, at the same time. So it was the, this core group of eight officers who were learning everything as we were going. And there was just a lot more opportunity. Your peer group has 26 people in it when you guys first arrived here. So in terms of proficiency um, and the fact that we were in the shipyard for so long, that's tough. And so you guys have a much more difficult road for your qualification process than I did, just by the sheer fact that, you know, we were awarded these opportunities because there weren't as many of us uh, trying to get the ball. But the, the, the bare bones of the process is the same. You know, we had to conduct PQS, we had to do training, we had to take credit for evolutions. And, and I'll be honest with you, it wasn't a fun process for me then, and it's not a fun process for you guys now. Uh, but you gotta do it. And uh, and so far, you know, I'm super proud of all of you guys. When I, when, I, when I watch you guys execute on the bridge, I sometimes have this, well, every time that we have a nice special evolution, I sit back and I just kind of watch everybody. And I watch what's happening. And everybody knows what to do. And if I think back to our first underway for TICOM Sea Trials back in 2020, 2021, excuse me, I think it was November of 2021, 
where nobody knew what to do, right? And we were all kind of learning this from the beginning. And now, when we are doing an, an unrep or whatever it is that we're doing, everybody knows their job, everybody knows how to drive the ship. And so I think that you guys are all learning things the right way. You guys are learning things the way I learned them. And so that's what I'm trying to impart on you guys. Um, I guess time will tell. But for the most part, I think you guys are going to be well prepared uh, for the for when you move on from Decatur to your next tour. So, so the, the, the bare bones of the process is the same. I admire you guys because it's a little bit harder. Yes, sir. And you mentioned checking on board that first day. Uh, the story from Japan when you first got there, uh, probably not good for airwaves. But uh, what was <laughs> what was the most trouble you've ever you ever got in as a jail? Oh man, jeez. Uh, so okay, I uh, one of my good buddies um, was the auxiliaries officer. This guy named Josh Lipsker. And uh, Josh, if you ever, if if you ever hear this, uh, you know you, you were my bud, man, and, and you were the OXO. I looked up to you. Josh Lipsker was a fantastic ship handler. He was the best ship handler we had on the ship, and he was he was my OD. I, I learned most of what I know about driving the ship, from Josh, back in that time. And uh, Josh was going to leave. He was uh, he he had been there about six months before I did. So part of the process is he was going to rotate and. Uh, go to his second tour and we were in Port Wainini and uh, he was going to have a hail and farewell but I was on duty this day and I was really bummed out about that that I wasn't going to be able to go to the hail and farewell to say bye to my buddy uh, so the XO uh, understood this and he said okay well hey uh, I know you and Josh are close so I'm going to give you an opportunity to, uh, to go to his farewell, but you gotta understand that you're on duty, and uh, so you know you, you can't drink, and you gotta come back to the ship. <laughs> and so I agreed to this plan with my XO, and I was like, yes sir, I'll thank you very much for letting me go, it means a lot to me, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I, I won't have any alcohol, and I'll come back to the ship, because I know I'm on duty. So we're at this, I don't remember the place, but I remember there was, it's kind of tacky. <laughs> they had pool tables at a bar. And, uh, you know, I broke the rule. I, uh, I went into the bathroom, and uh, Josh Lipsker and a couple of other my buddies were like, hey, like, you know, drink this beer. And so I had a drink or two or five. And then uh, it was time to leave. And I, was, I told these guys, hey, look, guys, I got to go back to the ship. And uh, they were like, you know, nobody's going to miss you anyway. Just hang out with us. So I, uh, I didn't go back to the ship. I, I didn't do either of the things I told the XO that I was going to do. I, I, I drank, and I didn't go back. So the next morning, I come back at 6 in the morning after being out all night. And it was the walk of shame back up to the ship with the rest of the duty section. He's like, wait a minute. Isn't that guy in this duty section? And I got a little bit of trouble for that. And uh, my boss, Jamie Burtz, who was a great department head, he was a great Chang. I had him actually for my first tour and my second tour, so that was an unusual case. But I had to, uh, a lot of what I learned about the Navy was from Jamie Burtz. Uh, stuck his neck out for me and had to explain to the captain that, hey, he's a good divo, he just got carried away. And But I got into some trouble and I got written up and I couldn't go out the next like port visit that we did. So I was, I was, it was basically like restriction for officers. So I decided to stay on board. And uh, like I did training on good order of discipline as penance for my, uh, my slip up. But that was about the most trouble I'd gotten into uh, as a JO. There's a couple of other things that I probably won't mention on this podcast, but uh, I guess that's the, the most rated PG. It's, it's a good story of how you can make a mistake in the Navy and still be able to to be able to be a commanding officer and, and have success. So, I mean, not everybody's gonna get it right, and and the, the the Navy the Navy in those times was a little bit different than the Navy today. Yes, sir. You know, like 
we had a we had a very uh, work hard, play hard mentality <laughs> on that shit. <laughs> we can still work hard, play hard, sir. Yeah, but, we can, uh, we can still do it. Yeah. We are working hard out here. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the AOR. Um, what we're out here with the Chinese. We've had interactions with them. Russians are sometimes out here too. Right. What do we provide out here? Um, for people that might be back at home in California or anywhere in the United States, what do we provide for uh, the United States out here in the Western Pacific? Yeah, so what's going on in the Western Pacific is, um, you know, you have, you have China is kind of like the big brother in this AOR uh, for the most part. And so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of claims to uh, to territorial seas that are that are unfounded and that are not supported by the government. And so what we're out here to do is we're out here to challenge that. I mean, any vessel can transit the South China Sea. The South China Sea is not part of the territory of China. And so what we're out here to do is we're out here to ensure that that freedom to use that waterway by us and our partner countries uh, is upheld without impedance from China. In addition to that, we are out here to support our partners who believe the same thing that we do, that you know, this is the open ocean, and we have access to it as well. And that, you know, excessive claims to man-made islands in this AOR don't give you rights uh, that you shouldn't have, and that other countries don't have. And so, interoperability with our partner countries is a big deal. Uh, primarily Australia, Japan, Korea, and other countries that we've had uh, a lot of joint exercises with in this AOR. You know, we are a reliable partner, the U.S. Navy is, and we have to make sure that that is a standard for when we're operating out here. And so our presence out here ensures that. And right now, we're not at war. Um, but the fact is, is that we need to ensure that our presence and the operations that we conduct out here with our partners are done as a matter of routine. Because the minute that we stop doing that, you revert back to a, you know, give an inch and they take a mile type of mentality. And that is exactly what will happen. Yes, sir. And, uh... We've been out here for, I guess, around three months at this point, sir, uh, in the AOR. Um, what has been kind of your favorite moment of deployment so far? Uh, let's see, favorite moment of deployment. We, uh, we located a submarine that had not been located by anybody, including the folks who are whose job it is to find submarines. Uh, we did this in protection of our of, uh, of uh, USS Nimitz, our aircraft carrier, and it was beautiful. Uh, we got um, indications and warning, and we got uh, a sniff of a submarine using some of our sensors on board the ship, and at the drop of a hat. Everybody was manned up. Uh, we had good contact on the submarine. We were in control of friendly aircraft to assist us in prosecuting the submarine. And at the drop of a dime, everybody was doing exactly what they were trained to do to try to locate a submarine on board the ship. And we did a great job. Uh, the other great deployment moment was uh, we were the primary air defense ship and the primary ballistic missile defense ship for the strike group and 
we had a casualty to our primary air search radar and within 24 hours our guys worked around the clock to restore that capability and that's that was so important because as the air defense picket ship we are the forward most ship that is providing early warning for the rest of the strike group of any inbound aircraft and that was that was a that was an important job that we were tasked with and uh and our guys you know they just they went above and beyond to ensure that we were able to get to, to execute that mission the other one was singapore pulling into a uh, a foreign port and that was our first foreign port visit um, and the team just did a phenomenal job everybody from the navigation team uh, was done we, we were just extremely professional uh, navigating in a foreign harbor um, having never done it before and everybody was excited about our first foreign port visit and we had been out at sea for close to 50 days at that point and uh, and I was so proud of the team and uh, being able to take our ship from San Diego California on December 2nd with 340 of our crew and represent the United States and our families and our ship uh, in a foreign country uh, with our ship you know, taking our ship from that from San Diego to, to Singapore uh, was a really proud moment for me and and, and our and our crew and it just it just demonstrated the professionalism of the guys that we have on board. Yes, sir. And uh, last question, wrapping it up. Um, you're the commanding officer of the ship. You're an officer, um, but if you had gone enlisted, sir, what would have been your rate? What what rate would you have? chosen if I had gone enlisted what would be my rate uh, that's an easy one I'd be a gas turbine systems mechanical technician a GSM and wh why sir I just I love machines I have since I was a kid I've always loved machines and machinery and uh, all my life I've worked around engineers and I've just always had an affinity for you know guys who work on gas turbine engines the, the gas turbine engines that we have on board the ship and the main reduction gear and everything that kind of makes the ship move through the water that system of systems to me is fascinating it's always been fascinating and I've always loved it one of the things that I used to love the most when I was Chang is full power demonstration. And it's just an awesome, awesome feeling to go down into main machinery room number two where the majority of your equipment is. And it has a certain sound and smell to it. And when you're, it, when just the, the engineering plant at full hum, 30 plus knots, with all the machinery operating at, at peak uh, peak power, peak performance, and it's just a, it's a it's just a glorious thing. Yes, sir. And uh, and if I were enlisted in the Navy, I would want to be one of the guys who maintains, fixes, and uh, cares for that equipment. See, I would have thought you would be a GM because you just look like you have a lot of fun on the reserve pounds. Oh, that, I mean that's a lot of fun too, but but uh, I my heart is in the engineering plant. So. Uh, the phone did ring earlier on in this podcast, and I am going to leave it in because I do have one last, last question, sir. Sure. Does the phone ringing in the middle of the night get really bothersome? Like, when you're trying to sleep, does it get really bothersome? <laughs> um, it's tough. I'll probably have PTSD for, for that noise, like, you know, <laughs> for, for a while. Wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. Just, oh. No, I mean, so, first of all, it's really loud. Um, like the, this phone is really loud and then the one in, in my sleeping compartment is even louder and so I get calls and 
I try not to be angry when it's anno- when it, when I do get annoyed with it. But I try to I, I, I try to answer and I and I try to focus on what's what I'm being told. But but people calling me in the middle of the night is about trust. And you know there's there's a reason for why you have to inform the captain of of, of certain issues in accordance with our standing orders. But uh, yeah, I would rather get a call and know something's going on than not get a call and not know what's going on. And so, so no, it, it isn't annoying. It's just part of my job. Yeah. The phone rings. I've got to answer. Yeah, because sometimes I feel like I just wake you up from a really good dream and you just roll over and cap. And I just, I feel so bad. <laughs> well, don't feel bad about it. I mean, again, that's that's my job here, and uh, the fact that you call every time, Danny, uh, I don't get angry with you. I, that that just means that you know you're doing things the right way, and uh, and I trust that you're going to do that uh, throughout throughout your time as a bridge wash editor. So awesome, well, sir. Thank you so much for the interview. Uh, awesome interview. Uh, feature for our fifth episode, and uh, and hopefully we can have you on another time and uh, get. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. I, I do have one last thing, though. Just a quick message for the families. Um, so the message that I have for the families is that I'm always just so proud of the sailors that are on board the ship. They are brave. They are tough. They're determined. And they are also kind. And every time that I walk around the ship and I just watch them and I I interact with them on a daily basis and they're just so proud to do their jobs and they're so proud of being on this team. I can't describe what that's like for me as the captain, uh, but I would like for everybody back home to know that you should be proud of these people on board Decatur. Your sailors are doing a phenomenal job and it's a challenging environment to be in, to wake up every day on the ocean, and uh, it's 509 feet. They can't leave the ship because we're in the middle of the ocean floating around. But every day, everybody's got such high morale, and everybody's looking out for each other, and not. We're just so lucky that to, that, that we have that bond, and uh, for the families. Your, your sailors, your 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 your, uh, your sailors on board the ship are doing well. They're safe, and uh, everyone's looking forward to getting back home and re- reuniting with the families. Thank you, sir. And I mean, I can't outdo that ending. So, uh, from uh, the USS Decatur, uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Uh, thanks for listening to the Boat Art Blast. I'm Lieutenant Junior Grade Danny Ehrlich. See you next week, Golden Mary.